I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no idea what the word befap meant until I read that book. This is Read This Book, A Road Not Taken. Now, this was going to be a more traditional edition of one of our Read These Books episodes. I had a few books that were interesting enough to talk about and recommend, and then I started working on the book that was at the top of the stack, and it was like, oh no, this is it. There's a whole episode here. Might not be as long as some of our episodes, but anything I discuss after this book would just sort of pale in comparison. So, the book is called The UFO Guidebook. And the cover says that it, quote, covers every aspect of ufology from abductee to zeroid. It was written by Norman J. Briazak and Simon Menick and published by Citadel Press in 1978. Now, I bought this a couple years ago at John K. King Used Books in Detroit, and I bought it for no other reason that I had never, ever heard of this book. And also because the period of the late 70s and early 1980s was an interesting I don't know, transition period for ufology. So I felt moved to check out what Briazak and Menek had to say. My world was never the same. Okay, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much of one. As we begin looking at the book, let's start with the authors, Norman J. Briazak and Simon Menek. What do we know about them? The book jacket says the following. Um, it has two pictures. One of them says Norman J. Briazak underneath it. The other one says Simon Menick underneath it. And that's it. No biographies, no listings of other books they've written. And other than that, I'm open to any feedback you have about who these two fellas are. A Google search reveals that they wrote the UFO guidebook. Searching their names separately reveals that each of them was one of the authors of the UFO guidebook. So we're kind of at a dead end there. So we'll move on to the book itself. It's basically a UFO dictionary with important people, terms, and events discussed. So far, so boring. And as I flipped through it, I was thinking that maybe I had wasted my $10 because... Oh, look, there is a fairly standard paragraph about who Donald Kehoe is and about what APRO was. And, oh, there's the Mantell incident. And, oh, look there, it's something else. But it was boring. And so I'm looking through it, and then something struck me. Some of the terms were, to put it very sort of, you know, broadly, unfamiliar to me. Now, I don't want to brag, but I know a lot of words. I may not know what they all mean or how to spell them or would ever use them in a conversation, but in general, my vocabulary of words that I vaguely recognize and can fake my way through knowing is pretty sizable. So some of these ufological terms were weird, and I decided at that point to read the book 
like a normal person from the beginning, starting with the introduction. And I almost never read a book like a normal person. Usually I skip around before reading through it because I'm looking for things or whatever. I don't do anything like a normal person. But I started with the introduction. And in this introduction, Briazak and Menek go through a fairly unremarkable history of UFO sightings, bringing up various pre-1945 things, including, you know, mystery airships, ghost rockets, things like that. Then they give some insight into the language of ufology. It was as I was reading this section that I knew I had a winner on my hands. They explain, or really lament, that ufology doesn't have a unique vocabulary like other fields of scientific endeavor. Rather, it borrows terms from other disciplines such as, quote, angel, demon, pulsar, laser, hypnosis, telepathy, electromagnetism, etc., end quote. However, they do acknowledge that there are some other terms that have been developed for use by people in ufological circles. UFO, euphonaut, saucerian, flying saucer, oint, flap, and window area are all terms native to ufology. Most of these terms or concepts have been widely used in the field of ufology for over two decades. Okay, I can buy some of that, but... Although euphonaut is currently experiencing a renaissance in some circles, it and saucerian are, are very sort of 50s-style terms. The rest of those terms I'm not going to argue with. They're, they're pretty standard things. Wait, what's that you're saying? What do you mean you don't use the word oint in your paranormal conversations? O-I-N-T, right? Everybody uses it. Well, everyone who's an insider, that is. Now, you may try to go to your Google machine and figure out what oint means, but you won't find anything other than that it's an archaic form of the word anoint. Those of us who move in more exalted UFO and paranormal circles use it all the time. So there are some UFO terms, they say, but not enough. You see, the authors of this book declare the following. There has been a dearth of sufficient terminology to effectively deal with the UFO subject. The lack of an adequate, comprehensive language has hampered ufology. Yes, that's right. The problem with ufology is that it doesn't have enough impenetrable jargon. The terms they use, ufologists use, they're, they're just regular terms. They're words people know. Applied to UFO subjects, that will not do because every field of study, you know, has its own way of talking. Jargon is what sets a field of discipline apart from other fields of discipline, or indeed apart from anything that normal humans might think about. So that's sort of their argument. Ufology doesn't have enough of its own words. Luckily, they have a solution. Ergo, it has been necessary in this handbook to create several neologisms. These neologisms have not been arbitrarily concocted. Rather, they were created to fill a vacuum. In ufology, there have existed several concepts for which there were no adequate and appropriate neutral words by which these concepts could be defined. The concepts themselves were not created, only the words to identify them. Do you see why I'm glad I got this book? So, what are some of these words? These words are aconin, befap, blisk, dimensionalism, manadim, nephology, naturalia, nebicism, starism, Zeroid. They claim that in each case there existed a need for such a term. 
I question that claim, and I think maybe some of you will as well by the time we're done with this. So what do these words mean? I mean, they aren't common terms like oint. This is weird stuff. So nebicism is the theory that, quote, Earth was and or still is being visited by technologically advanced beings from another planet, end quote. And a BFAP is a term for those beings. Now, how did they arrive at such a distasteful-sounding term like BFAP? Well, like several of their neologisms, they aren't strictly actually new words or neologisms. They're sort of, and I don't want to sound snarky here, I really don't, but they're sort of tortured acronyms. In this case, BFAP is short for being from another planet. B-E-F-A-P. Running parallel to the BFAP is uh, is something called dimensionalism. Now, this one is actually quite a sensible word. Dimensionalism is the theory that we're being visited by beings from other dimensions. Now, nebicism is the theory that we're being visited by BFAPs, who are beings from another planet. And dimensionalism is the theory that we're being visited by manadim, or manifestation from another dimension. Manadim, manifestation from another dimension. Perfectly reasonable. Now, a conan, a conin, another conscious intelligence. This is basically a term that encompasses both the BFAP and the manadim. So we've got a conan, and underneath a conan are both BFAP and manadim. It, I don't know why this never took off. Nephology, um, nephology, N-A-P-H-O-L-O-G-Y, is uh, their term for the study of unexplained phenomenon. And what's a blisk? A blisk is a unit of velocity equal to the speed of light. Apparently, just saying speed of light was taking years off all of our lives, so we needed a word. Starism is the belief that humanity's destiny is out there among the stars. And naturalia is a collective term for, report, for quote, reported but unexplained phenomena, end quote. So, nephologists, they explain, study naturalia. And what's a zeroid? Basically, alien animals. Which probably doesn't encompass Bigfoot. Sorry, all of you Bigfoot is an alien people. Bigfoot is a manimal. Yes, a manimal. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of this. Dr. Jonathan Chase. Wealthy, young, handsome. A man with the brightest of futures. A man with the darkest of pasts. From Africa's deepest recesses to the rarefied peaks of Tibet, heir to his father's legacy and the world's darkest mysteries. My son, you must have faith and learn. This is not the end. This is the beginning. Jonathan Chase. Master of the secrets that divide man from animal. Animal from man. Wow!
Manimal. In case you didn't know, Manimal was a TV show that aired on NBC for about four and a half minutes in 1983. And I really hope Briazak and Menick got some money from um, the network for this because, come on, I mean, Manimal. Now, most of the book's entries are on actual real words, people, and events that you would recognize. And most of those are pretty good, at least not objectionable. We'll take a look at that in a minute. But I wonder how many people bought this book in the late 70s or early 80s and embarrassed the heck out of themselves by showing up at their local MUFON meeting talking about BFAPs and manadims, asking people if they thought Bigfoot was a manimal or a xeroid, and trying to convince their in-laws that they were going to be able to make a living as a nephologist any day now. In a minute, we'll look at some of the ways in which this book isn't entirely goofy, as well as try to figure out what impact this book had, if any. I wasn't being snarky before. Oint is a thing. It's in the dictionary, or the UFO guidebook, and they define it and talk about where they got the term, and it wasn't from some voice they were hearing coming through their typewriter. It came from somewhere vaguely credible. If oint is a term you've heard or used in a ufological or a paranormal context, let me know where and how I'm genuinely curious, curious rather, about the degree to which oint penetrated the paranormal culture. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. We've gotten some some interesting things in the mail over the last uh, the last few weeks, and thank you also to those who have uh, slipped us monetary love offerings over the holiday season. It's uh, very much appreciated. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. If you want to send us something strange in the mail, legal things that are not going to hurt me, you can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life, as I assume you realize since you're listening to it, is available anywhere you find podcasts. And now we're going to return to the UFO Guidebook. So, Akonans and BFAPs and Manadims and Manimals aside, what about the other stuff? Let's look at that. Because dictionaries or encyclopedias or any kind of sort of compendium that pretends toward completeness, it's always very interesting because you can see what the author's or editor's or compiler's philosophy about the thing they're talking about is by what they include or what they don't. We can learn a lot about Briazak's and Menick's approach to, okay, I'll use the term, nephology by examining how they handle topics with which we might be more familiar. And just to be completely predictable, we will start with George Adamski. One of the first modern-day UFO contactees, and certainly one of the most famous... His name is now itself part of the lore of ufology. He reportedly saw his first UFO through a telescope in late 1946. These telescope sightings continued for years. Then, in November 1952, he went to a desert in California in the belief that there he would find UFOs and establish contact with them. He claimed that this venture was successful and that he had established personal contact with a euphonaut, allegedly from Venus this being expressed concern over nuclear testing on Earth. 
Controversy surrounds Adamski to this day, over a decade after his death. Some consider him an outright hoax. Others believe in him, revere his memory, and view him as a modern prophet of sorts. Okay. I can't argue with any of that. It gives the basics and provides a fairly balanced account of how Adamski's stories and claims were perceived by the late 70s. Broad disbelief among the ufological community, but also a hardcore of people who held to his beliefs. The George Adamski Foundation, I believe, was uh, in full operation by 1978, and this was also the era of um, of Fred Steckling. And uh, uh, yeah, Fred Steckling, Glenn is his son, but Fred Steckling sort of continuing to promote and defend Adamski's ideas to the ufological world. The entry for Abductee is pretty good, too. This is the opening of it. Abductee, the victim of a UFO abduction. These cases form the most interesting of the UFO encounters. In an abduction case, there is alleged to be an actual kidnapping of a human or humans by euphonauts for the purpose of examination and subsequent release, or possibly for the purpose of permanent captivity. Human abductees who aren't released by the euphonauts may be utilized by them in one of several ways. Servitude, source of food, source of amusement, and zoological or museum specimens. They go on to discuss the distinctions between contactees, conductees, between abductees and conduct... I'm not going to edit that. Between abductees and contactees arguing that a contactee encounter involves conversation and the sharing of some kind of message. As examples of abductees, they cite Antonio Villas-Boas, Betty and Barney Hill, and they discuss the Pascagoula case as well. Now, what I find interesting, and um, especially interesting, and especially interesting because I think it's a strand of abduction research that, for very sort of obvious reasons, never went anywhere, is the possibility of humans being abducted and being kept forever, not being returned, not being around to have hypnosis conducted on them and to tell us what happened to them, but humans in some sort of alien zoo somewhere or for amusement or experimentation and then just sort of killed and discarded or something like that. That's a strand that uh, I find uh, particularly troubling, but also kind of thrilling. And they not only, in this book, have an entry on Mothman, they cross-reference it with the term Garuda, so they're paying attention to their, uh, their John Keel. There's an entry for Magonia as well. In ufological lore, this was the place of origin of the mysterious people with the ships from the clouds who visited villages in France in the 9th century AD. See Argobard. Well, you heard him. We have to go see Argobard. Archbishop of Lyon. The Archbishop of Lyon in France, who in 840 AD condemned the belief of many local peasants in the existence of ships from the clouds, the inhabitants of which were said to have come from a place called Magonia. The farmers are said to have traded with these beings and, on one occasion, to have stoned to death four individuals, three men and one woman, who are said to have fallen from a sky ship. Now, if you're like me, and I really kind of hope none of you are, but if you are, the first place you heard of Magonia was probably in the title of Jacques Vallée's book, Passport to Magonia. Interestingly, despite having entries on John Keel and, um, and uh, Dr. Hynek and other 
notable ufological writers and researchers, there is no mention of Jacques Vallée in this book. And he had written things, of course, by 1978. I think that is an interesting sort of omission, and I'm interested to know why there is an omission there. Even when you look at the bibliography of recommended books at the end of the UFO guidebook, it's very strange that a book that has an entry for Magonia does not have the 1969 book Passport to Magonia listed as recommended reading. I just find that very strange, and I suspect that uh, there was some sort of feud, possibly threats of violence. I don't know. Probably not. I like to think so. I like to think there's some sort of exciting reason why they left Jacques Vallée out of here. So in this book, we've got not only sort of the contemporary post-1947 UFO world addressed, but also the sort of deep historical examination of aerial phenomenon going on. We've got some nice distinction between contact and abduction. And as much as I enjoy goofing on their neologisms, there's something really interesting going on with this book. As I said at the outset of this episode, this book came out at a fascinating time for ufology. It came out in 1978, and in the late 70s to early 80s, it's almost inevitable that a book like this would emerge, not because there was some sort of sweeping desire to come up with new terms, but because it represents an attempt to craft a new ufology a ufology that could encompass a variety of different paradigms. And these range from the nuts and bolts NICAP school of thought to full and fair coverage of skeptical viewpoints right on through to talking about John Keel and the super spectrum and ultra-terrestrials. This book talks about every possible aspect of ufology, inventing words almost as a way to say this is new, this is different, this is not... This is not your dad's ufology. Because, a little history lesson here, by the late 70s, things had gotten a little bit weird. We'd had a few books by Jacques Vallée. We'd had the Mothman Prophecies. We'd had the Condon Report saying there is nothing of scientific value to studying UFOs. There's a real question of what direction ufology should go in. And there were different strands pulling in different directions at a rate almost as high as, as what you had back in the 50s when you had the Donald Kehoes of the world sort of pushing back against the, the tide of contactee stuff. So this book represents sort of a both-and approach rather than an either-or approach to ufology. And this attempt to create new terms reflects a desire to, I think, maybe, put, for example, the interdimensional hypothesis on an equal semantic footing with the more familiar extraterrestrial theory of what might be happening. There are space aliens. There are interdimensional visitors. These are two fields of study within the broader discipline of nephology. And okay, yes, the attempt to create a new language for paranormal study was kind of a blind alley, but overall, this is, this is a really good guidebook. If I were to give somebody this book who knew nothing about ufology, UFOs, or anything, and they really didn't care about anything that happened after 1978, this wouldn't be bad. In fact, there's one thing about it that makes it preferable to almost every UFO encyclopedia or dictionary that has come out since, and that is there is no mention of Roswell whatsoever. So, 
what was the impact of this book, which, like I said earlier, the more I read, the more I, I really enjoyed. And specifically, as I read it, I wondered, why didn't these terms take off? Leaving aside their clumsiness and the fact that there may have been no real reason for them to exist, I think it's interesting that there's almost no reference to these terms in other UFO books or publications, even in a way that makes fun of them. Now, I know that Google is not the be-all and end-all of knowledge, but my time is limited. And between various search functions and the, um, the Google Ngram viewer, which uses a data set of massive amounts of digitized books, I found very few references to these terms. And most of the search results were for various Google book scans of the UFO guidebook itself. So not only did these terms like BFAP not take off, nobody even talked about how dumb they were, which I find fascinating. But I did find a few things. There were some interesting results that came through. The January and February 1979 issue of the UFO Research Newsletter had a brief sort of capsule review of the guidebook. This newsletter was published by the UFO Research Associates, which was based in Los Angeles. Okay, you crossword puzzle buffs, try these on for size. Aconin, Bifap, Blisk, Kabbalah, Celestio Metathesis. Cosmogony, or Manadim, Mascon, Mazer, Mison, Nephology, Nebicism. How about Optiman, Tachyon, Theocyte, Transmogrification, Zeroid? Stumped? You should be. Even Mr. Webster is apparently aware of no more than half a dozen of the above. The rest, according to Norman J. Briazak and Simon Menick in the UFO Guidebook, are all part of the new ufologist's dictionary. In their book, Briazak and Menek define and explain several hundred UFO and UFO-related words, from abductee to zoology. Some of the words, admittedly, have only the slightest peripheral connection to the UFO phenomenon, but the book is a welcome and unusual addition to the literature. Whether you vie for the BFAP nebicism, manadim, or xeroid theories to explain UFO manifestation, an examination of this work might provide some non-exacerbating insights into the lexicon of the nephologist. There's some quality snark in that review. I fully appreciate it. But despite their amusement or bemusement at the terms that were invented for the UFO guidebook, I'm glad they at least recognized its, uh, its importance and its value. Some of the terms also appeared in a couple articles written by Anne Griffin, the director of the Irish UFO and Paranormal Research Association, in their newsletter in some issues that appeared during the early 1990s. The articles are fairly basic explorations of the concept of nebicism, and while Griffin does cite the UFO guidebook in one of the articles, in the other, anyone reading it would assume that nebicism is just a standard paranormal term, which is, which is pretty interesting. But my favorite reference to these terms or use of these terms is from a book that was published in 1994 called The Slacker Handbook, possibly the most 1994 book you could imagine. It was written by a Sarah Dunn, and it includes a chapter called Martians versus Masons, Choosing a Conspiracy Theory. And in this chapter, Dunn gives us, quote, an alien lexicon, which contains 10 terms all of which were taken from the UFO guidebook, and seven of which were the neologisms that Briazak and Menek developed. She does include their book in the bibliography, so I'm very happy about that little bit of citation there. Good work, Sarah Dunn. 
One last reference I found just by looking for, I think I just Googled nebicism. There's a 2017 editorial on a Nigerian news website that references theories of nebicism and nephology within the context of some local or regional political situations within Nigeria. And I couldn't really understand what they were talking about because it assumed that the reader knew a whole lot about what was going on in this particular part of Nigeria. So clearly, these terms circulated a bit, but for the most part, from what I can tell, this book just sort of fell off the face of the earth, and I'm not sure why. To be sure, it was kind of a low point as far as ufology's public image, appearance, profile went. APRO was on the way out by 78 or 79, uh, NICAP was gone, MUFON was new, so UFO stuff wasn't really as big in 78 as it would be even, you know, four or five years later. But there also might have been issues of distribution and availability of the book itself. The copy I have is the only used copy of it that I've ever seen in a store. And compare that to the dozens of copies of books by the Lorenzans, Frank Edwards, Donald Kehoe, etc. Uh, to look at some 60s books, for example. Um... The U.S. edition was uh, published by Citadel, and there was also a United Kingdom edition from New English Library. So there were just two editions. Neither book, as far as I can tell, went to a second printing in either country. Citadel, uh, Citadel Press, um, the books were distributed by Lyle Stewart, Incorporated. <laughs> Ah, yes, the dreaded footnote noise. Um, Lyle Stewart uh, caught my attention because, well, okay, this, you know me, readers. You know that this is the sort of thing I would notice. The Doctor Who story novelizations published by Target Books um, in the 1970s and 80s were distributed in the U.S., imported and distributed by Lyle Stewart. So that's a that's a name that, that caught my eye. And the Lyle Stewart, who started Lyle Stewart Incorporated, is a uh, he's a very interesting guy who had a very interesting um, history of publishing some fairly fringe and fairly controversial material. He was uh, the publisher of the Anarchist Cookbook at one point, and if you've heard of the Anarchist Cookbook, you know why that might be a little controversial. Uh, he also, in later years, uh, published an edition of the Turner Diaries, the uh, sort of racist manifesto masquerading as racist novel. So Lyle Stewart, um, that name caught my eye. But despite sharing a distributor with Doctor Who novels, I don't think this book got a lot of coverage. I don't, I don't think it got enough eyeballs, especially the eyeballs of those who are prominent within the UFO field. Now, one last bit of impact. This book has one, one rating on Amazon, one review rather on Amazon, and it is by a guy named John. That's all we know or John's, I guess. Uh, he is from the United Kingdom, I think. Um, and uh, I think Amazon reviews are interesting. He gives this book two stars, and the review is headlined, Mostly Uninteresting and Irrelevant. He says, 
covers every aspect of ufology from abductee to zeroid, it says on the cover. Actually, after zeroid comes zodiac and zoology, just two of the irrelevant entries in this 1978 book. There are long, boring entries on bionic, a term popularized by the series Six Million Dollar Man, free will, determinism, galaxian, philosophy. Otto Binder and Ivan Sanderson are referred to as if they were still alive. Ruppelt's report on UFOs is considered, quote, one of the best of its kind and remains a standard reference in the field till this day. In the entry for Lubbock Lights, the authors don't mention Ruppelt's conclusion that the lights were night-flying moths. Overall, a waste of time. The entry for mutilations included brief details of one case I had not heard of, the mutilation of 30 animals in Jungle Habitat, West Milford, New Jersey, which included the decapitation of an elephant. However, even at the current used price of approximately $2, it is overpriced. In fact, even if it was one cent, I wouldn't recommend it. Okay, that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. So sometimes an interesting thing to do when you see an Amazon review that you're not sure you agree with, and that's fine, there are different tastes, but it's always interesting to see what types of ratings the person gave to other things. And since they published these things on Amazon for the entire internet to read, uh, let's take a look. He gives one star to Visitors from Lanulos by Woody Derenberger. He says it's, uh, the headline is Poorly Written Sci-Fi Fantasy. Quote, a very quick read, end quote. We know why that is. It's because the copy that's for sale on Amazon is incomplete. But he says the author makes some outlandish claims about visitors from a strange planet from Lanulos who drop down to visit him and take him on trips in a UFO. He then goes through the chapters and says why he doesn't like each of the chapters. Um, for chapter six, he says, Darren Berger is on Lanulos. Indrid has a beautiful house. Darren Berger meets Indrid's son, who is, called, who is called Conrad. Conrad! Darren Berger couldn't even be bothered to invent an alien-sounding name for the boy. It's almost as if... I mean, I don't want to sort of guess at what John's background is here, but it's almost like he's never heard of contactees and doesn't realize that they are sometimes kind of goofy in the books they write. Another review, um, he gives uh, Gray Barker's The Silver Bridge two stars, headline Mothman Flop, uh, an unsuccessful mix of fact and fiction, he said. I thought the book started well, with Barker heading down unpromising country roads to interview eyewitnesses, but it soon goes downhill. The laughable Woodrow Derenberger story of contact with an amiable alien called Indrid Cold features as a subplot, but Barker treats it as fact. Probable real-life conversations Barker had with his friends and colleagues Jim Mosley and John Keeler included, including mention of weird telephone calls. And it goes on. Um, so, it's... How do you how do you give the Silver Bridge one star unless you are just sort of predisposed to not like stuff that Gray Barker writes? Let's look at some other reviews, just sort of scanning them. Um, oh, a collection of Saucerian articles, three stars, okay in parts. Um, selected writings of John Keel, two stars, headline, more subjective speculation. Uh Flying Saucer to the Center of Your Mind gets three stars. Moderately entertaining collection of articles by Renegade Ufologist. Uh, Disneyland of the Gods gets two stars. Headline, Keelhauled. 
that's kind of clever. I have to give him that. So, uh, John's not a fan of, uh, of this book or gosh, many others. He, this is a man who apparently only reviews books. He does not like this is at least UFO books. So this is pretty interesting. Anyway, I think it's interesting. So the UFO guidebook doesn't get a lot of coverage, doesn't get a lot of traction, doesn't get a lot of attention, is fairly unknown by most people, even within the UFO field, at least from what I've seen. And what I've seen is almost nothing about it. It didn't have a massive impact in the culture, in the ufological culture itself. But let's imagine a world where this book did become sort of the standard UFO dictionary, where it was recommended as the ideal entry point for learning about the field and its associated disciplines. It's not just the use of terminology like zeroid and BFAP that would be different. Imagine if the extraterrestrial theory adherents and dimensionalists could have somehow ended up on the same level of attention and, maybe this isn't the best word, popularity. Despite the persistence and occasional prominence of more arcane uh, theories like ultra-dimensional ideas or things like that. The alien thing has, has been, is now, and probably ever shall be the most recognizable explanation of the various aerial phenomenon, especially in the mainstream mass media coverage. This book is like reading something that fell through a hole in space-time, giving us a glimpse of a ufological world that is 90% like our own, but just different enough to be jarring. It's a fun read, and if you can find a used copy, there are a few on Amazon. There's a link in the show notes. I recommend picking it up. As I said, there's a link to uh, purchase the book uh, in the show notes, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and thanks for the feedback I've gotten on the Saucer Afterlife little sort of mini episode uh, that aired last time. I've got an idea for one coming up this uh, this Wednesday that will cost you a mere seven to eight minutes of your life. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time. Keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.